Hi, and welcome back to Good Distinctions. Good distinctions are the spice of life. I'm your host, Will Wright, and today we're asking the question, what in the world is a theophany? Now, if you're a Latin Rite Catholic, you've just celebrated the Feast of the Epiphany, or maybe you're listening to this at a different part of the year. I promise it's applicable all throughout the year. So today we're looking at what is a theophany? What is an epiphany? And there's four moments in particular in the life of Christ that really tell us what a theophany is. Is. And so I'm really excited to get into this with you today. If you haven't yet subscribed at gooddistinctions.com, I highly recommend that you go and do that. I'm trying to put out at least three or four written articles a week, and I'm going to have some guest contributors on Good Distinctions to, to write hopefully soon. Lots of good interviews coming up. Uh, I'm very excited in a couple of days uh, from when I'm recording this, I'll be recording with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Uh, I've also recorded recently with Simone Rizcala and uh, a bunch of other really awesome people. Some people I know and and some people that I've only met virtually. So it's a lot of fun. If you've enjoyed these, uh, please review and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. That would help a lot or on YouTube. Uh, if you're on YouTube, subscribe, like and share. Okay, with that out of the way, what in the world is a theophany? The Catholic Church is about 2,000 years old, right? instituted by Jesus Christ. And over those two millennia, different liturgical feasts have come and gone. And there are two modern feast days in the Catholic Church, which are not well understood, and which have a very interesting history. And this is what we'll be looking at today. What is the epiphany? And what is the baptism of the Lord? And you might be thinking, wait, I thought we were talking about theophany. Well, we are. We are. Uh, so epiphany comes to us from the Eastern Church, where sources suggest that it's the same festival as Christmas. And that's why a lot of Orthodox today actually celebrate the birth of Christ's nativity on January 6th. Uh, some in the early church celebrated Christmas on January 6th but most celebrated it on December 25th. The celebration of the Magi being led by a star was also in the mix. And what's really interesting is what epiphany came to mean. As I mentioned, uh, some celebrated the birth of Jesus, and there's discrepancies about what it was called. Some sources call it the theophany. And that's a very interesting thing, because St. Hippolytus writes about the Eistahagia uh, theophania. And I don't speak Greek, so that's my best uh, attempt. But it, basically, it's for the Holy Theophany. That's what he called it in the early church. And it was in reference to someone about to receive the sacrament of baptism. Now, ordinarily, we're used to Easter being the time when people enter the church, when people are baptized. But St. Hippolytus is writing about the Theophany and the birth of the Lord and the celebration of the sacrament of baptism. Now, others still on January 6th uh, commemorate the miracle of Jesus changing the water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. Others attribute, attribute the feast of the Theophany as marking the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. And still others marked it as a day to remember the transfiguration of the Lord on Mount Tabor. So lots of things going on. But today, the East tends to focus on the baptism of the Lord in the Jordan uh, on, on Epiphany, on January 6th, and the West tends to concentrate on the mystery of the Magi. And in fact, if uh, if you go to an 
a Latin rite mass, that's what the readings were about, was the Magi. Another interesting link between the East and the West uh, was the water blessed on this great feast. In the East, including Eastern Orthodoxy and Eastern Catholicism today, the service of Theophany includes the great blessing of water. And this inspired the blessing of the Epiphany water in the West, which was adopted and included in the Roman ritual in 1890. Um, so for those familiar with the Epiphany water blessing, it's it's not a very old devotion in the West, but it's an ancient devotion in the East. So if you're interested in seeing the full text of that blessing, uh, it'll be in the uh, notes on gooddistinctions.com. Uh, for this episode, I've got the entire uh, script written out so that uh, you can read it at your leisure while also listening to it. Um, but I also have a PDF from the Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest that goes through that blessing. There's also a blessing of the home that can be done by lay people, and it utilizes chalk that's been blessed by the priest at the parish and then taken home. If a priest can be present for that, that's that's preferred, but uh, it's not always logistically possible in a large parish. At any rate, each room in the house is blessed with holy water, and then the exterior doorway is marked with the blessed chalk. And the, the prayer says this, Blessed be this doorway. May all who come to our home this year rejoice to find Christ living among us as we welcome them with respect and kindness. May all our comings and goings be under the seal of God's loving care. May we seek and serve in everyone we meet, Jesus, who is Lord forever and ever. Amen. Meanwhile, the door is inscribed with the chalk with the year and the letters C, M, and B with crosses in between each part. So it'll be written out 20 plus C plus M plus B plus 24. So the first and last numbers are the current year, marking the entire year for Christ. Now, the letters have two meanings. First, the C, M, and B stand for the traditional names of the Magi, the wise men, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. But it also stands for the Latin blessing, well, the first uh, letter of each word in the Latin blessing, Christus Mansionem Benedica, which means Christ bless this house. So these long-held and beloved devotionals and sacramentals of the Epiphany Chalk and Water give us a sense of how ancient this celebration is, and in doing so, our houses become sacramentals, and we show our love for the Lord. Unlike the violent and despicable King Herod, we welcome the Christ child into our home with open arms. And if you're really interested in the history of the feast and how it appears in the various missals and sacramentaries, I'd recommend the Catholic Encyclopedia article on New Advent entitled Epiphany. Uh, also, that link will be on gooddistinctions.com. So what is the Epiphany or the Theophany? Well, an Epiphany, in terms of a definition, is a sudden realization. The Greek finane means to cause, to appear, or show. Theophany is the combination of the word epiphany with the Greek word for God, which is theos. So a theophany is a sudden realization, or a better word might be manifestation, of God in glory. And rather than attempting to figure out what exactly we ought to mark this epiphany, I thought it would be fruitful to walk through the various moments in the life of Christ that have been historically associated with the epiphany. 
And this is another reason why I'm releasing this after the epiphany already happened, because, you know, these things we mark throughout the year, the liturgical calendar, but it's not like these things lose their meaning or we can't uh, meditate on them other days of the year. And as we'll see, there's actually four separate occasions on which we can actually mark the Feast of the Epiphany in a very real sense, theologically speaking. So what are these various theophanies? Well, the appearance of the Magi, let's start there. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see the Magi visiting the newborn Jesus in Bethlehem. And Magi comes from the Greek word mangos, which means it was associated with a priestly caste uh, from Persia. And these wise men were well-versed in reading the meaning of the stars, what we might call astrology, and also in interpreting, interpreting dreams. And astrology was something which almost all of the ancients paid attention to. And while the stars don't influence the course of things as the ancients might have thought, God can still use them to mark and uh, to signal major events. The position of the stars and the planets coincides with the natural movements of the earth and the season. So reading the stars was a wealth of information for those who knew what they were looking at. And the Magi from the East were, were wealthy. They were possibly royal uh, Gentiles, and they came to request an audience with King Herod. And they had seen a sign in the stars associated with Jupiter, the king of the planets, and they came to meet the new king that was signaled by the rising of Jupiter. Herod was taken aback by this news of a new king as he had not recently fathered a baby son. The Magi likely consulted with the scribes and the chief priests in Jerusalem and were pointed towards Bethlehem. In Micah 5.2, there's a clear indication that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And this is where the theophany comes in. The Magi come before the newborn king, Jesus. They present him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, because he's a king. Frankincense, because he is a priestly mediator between God and man. And myrrh, because he would suffer and die for the sins of man. Myrrh was an anointing oil. The Magi reveals the glory of the Messiah, the God-man, who came into the world to save the Jews and the Gentiles alike. The presence of these Gentile dignitaries kneeling before the Christ child makes it clear that God is manifesting himself to all the world, all the nations, not just the Jews. And the presence, the gifts of these wise men manifest the reality of the God-man as priest, prophet, and king. For more on the Magi and what may have led them from uh, led them east, um, from the east rather, I warmly recommend the Mysteries of the Magi article on JimmyAiken.com. Okay, so for the second theophany, the miracle at the wedding feast at Cana. In this one, Jesus Jesus reveals who he is and shows the power of God by working his first public miracle. The second chapter of John's gospel recounts this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also invited to the wedding, was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There's so much to say here, but one thing that St. Augustine points out is that the son, when he was with the father, instituted marriage. And yet here he is coming to a wedding. What a gift that is in and of itself. But one of the curious parts of this manifestation of God's glory is when Jesus answers his mother saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, of course, Jesus is never disrespectful to the blessed mother. The church fathers saw Jesus calling Mary woman as a reference to her role as the new Eve, the mother of all the living in the spiritual sense. The hour to which Jesus is referring is his death. He knew that he still had yet to call the disciples, proclaim the kingdom, do miracles, declare his divinity in word and deed, and then show the humility of undergoing daily sufferings of humanity, even though he was God. In obedience to his mother, he nonetheless worked his first public miracle, thus beginning the time of his hour. But as St. Augustine points out, our Lord claims the reality later in John's gospel that he has the power to lay his life down and the power to take it up again. He says that in John 10, 18. So it's, it's not that his manifestation of divine power will start some sort of faded countdown. Rather, it was that he didn't think it was expedient to show his power in this way, just not yet. Uh, and yet he, he still did. As St. John Chrysostom points out, Although he said, mine hour is not yet come, he afterwards did what his mother told him in order to show plainly that he was not under subjugation or subjection to the hour. Yet he also showed honor to his mother in performing the miracle. At any rate, this, this miracle was not a mere manipulation. It wasn't a magic trick or an illusion. Instead, as Alquin of York put it, he was the king of glory and changed the elements because he was their Lord. There, there's so much more that's revealed in this miracle, but this will suffice for now. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the son of God. And in his first public miracle, we see a true theophany. What should our response be? Well, none other than what our blessed mother says, do whatever he tells you. Okay, the next theophany is the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. And to prepare for the kingdom of heaven, St. John the Baptist called people to repentance, to turn away from their sins. And he did this by baptizing people in the Jordan River. Now, this baptism was purely symbolic, and it really shouldn't be confused with the sacrament of baptism. People came from all Judea and all the Jordan around the Jordan River to hear John preach. Even the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes came out to hear John preach. They even confessed their sins and were baptized. 
John's was a voice crying in the desert to repair the way of the Lord, hearkening back to Isaiah's words. And of course, Jesus had no need of being baptized. He was sinless and is God. So what's happening here? Well, the catechism does a beautiful job of explaining this. It says this in uh, 536, paragraph 536. The baptism of Jesus is on his part the acceptance and inauguration of his mission as God's suffering servant. He allows himself to be numbered among sinners. He is already the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Already he's anticipating the baptism of his bloody death. Already he's coming to fulfill all righteousness. That is, he's submitting himself entirely to his Father's will. Out of love he consents to this baptism of death for the remission of our sins. The father's voice responds to the son's acceptance, proclaiming his entire delight in his son. The spirit whom Jesus possessed in fullness from his conception comes to rest on him. Jesus will be the source of the spirit for all mankind. At his baptism, the heavens were opened. The heavens that Adam's sin had closed and the waters were sanctified by the scent of Jesus and the spirit a prelude to the new creation. And again, that's from Catechism of the Catholic Church 536. Now, Pope Benedict XVI in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, points out the symbolism as well of Jesus entering into the waters of the Jordan River as he would one day enter into his death in the tomb. And his rising from the water was like the resurrection to come. We still hold to this theological reality in our own sacrament of baptism. We die with Christ and we rise with Christ, a new creation. Jesus' public life begins when he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. And we say that this is a theophany because Jesus is revealed to be the Lamb of God by John the Baptist, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. But more than that, when the baptism happens, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes upon Jesus and the voice of the Father from heaven proclaims, this is my beloved Son. And so here then we have a full theophany of all three persons of the Blessed Trinity, this full manifestation of God's glory. The final theophany we'll quickly review today is the transfiguration of the Lord. In St. Mark's Gospel, we hear, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Moses with Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. That's from Mark uh, chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. So Jesus revealed himself first in the stable at Bethlehem in lowly stature. God Almighty condescended to share in our humanity the model of perfect humanity. He revealed himself at a wedding party, who is himself the bridegroom of the church. He revealed himself in the waters of the Jordan. He sanctified the waters of the whole world, a clearly meaningful gesture considering how important water is to us as humans. And now he reveals his glory on a lofty mountaintop. He did not transfigure his features because the apostles still recognized him, but an ineffable brightness was added. It was something that came from within him. In fact, maybe we shouldn't even say it was added. It was already there, but there was a change in Peter, James, and John so that they could see it. He was transfigured before them. And he brings with him two people, Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses is the representative of the whole law and Elijah represents all the prophets. And Jesus is the embodiment of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So as in each theophany, the mission of Jesus is revealed. He is the incarnate word who came to redeem our fallen humanity. His hour begins with his first public miracle, the hour of his passion, death, and resurrection. The baptism in the Jordan reveals his public ministry and that he is the Messiah. And Pope Benedict reminds us, too, that, quote, the mystery of the transfiguration must not be separated from the context of the path Jesus is following. He is now decisively oriented to fulfilling his mission, knowing all too well that to arrive at the resurrection, he must pass through the passion and death on the cross. He had spoken openly of this to his disciples, but they did not understand. On the contrary, they rejected this prospect because they were not reasoning in accordance with God, but in accordance with men. So the folly of the cross is coming. And Jesus wants to prepare Peter, James, and John to make their way through the forested thickness of the passion and death. The light showing forth from Jesus on the mountain wasn't added from without. As God, he had the divine light within him already. He was further revealing himself to his closest friends, giving them eyes to see. Besides the light, we also hear the voice of the Father again echo the words from the river of Jordan. This is my beloved son. But he adds, listen to him. So what in the world is a theophany? It's a sudden manifestation of God in his glory, power, humility, truth, and grace. God reveals himself and the mission of the Son to us throughout the Gospels. And we must seek to place ourselves in these moments. In the sacred liturgy in particular, we can do this by God's grace. In the Mass, we step outside of time and space and the mundane in a mystical way. We enter into a foretaste of heavenly glory but Jesus, as our high priest, also makes present these past moments of majestic revelation afresh, each and every holy mass. At the Epiphany, we're celebrating the arrival of the Magi to adore the Christ child. And standing astounded with the chief steward of the feast of the wedding in Cana, and standing by the waters of the Jordan, seeing the Holy Spirit descend and the voice of the Father resound, and standing dazzled by the transfiguration of the Lord. 
it can be overwhelming to hold on uh, to that many things in our mind at once. But thankfully, Holy Mother Church has given us the space to do so over the years. In the Latin Rite, we celebrate the Epiphany of the Lord on January 6th, or the closest Sunday in the United States. And in 2024, for example, it's on Sunday, January 7th. In 1955, Pope Pius XII separated out Baptism of the Lord as a distinct feast. And this was celebrated on January 13th for some, for some time, um, but it's now kept as the first Sunday after Epiphany. Or if Epiphany is celebrated on Sunday in a particular country like it is in the United States, then Baptism of the Lord is celebrated on the Monday directly after. Uh, in 2024, that would be January 8th. The wedding feast at Cana comes up in the gospel readings on January 7th at daily mass, if it's not a Sunday, and on the second Sunday in ordinary time in year C. And the Transfiguration, of course, is celebrated on August 6th, which allows us to remember the link to the other three theophanies half a year later. So there's so many different opportunities that our Lord gives us to think about these different times that he has revealed his glory. He's revealed his mission, what he came to do, which is to become one of us, to share in our humanity so that we could become divinized, so that we could go through this process of theosis, as the Eastern Church calls it, to become like him. And that's the point of these, these theophanies, is to reveal himself to invite us to become like him. So that is what a theophany is. And here's a, those are a few different examples of theophanies. If you've enjoyed this episode, again, please uh, leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, Apple Podcasts, I think it's just a matter of clicking five stars and that's it. Uh, Spotify, I think you can re leave a, a written review. Uh, YouTube, subscribe, like, share. That's how uh, more people will see the podcast, will see the videos or, or the audio, however you're listening. And above anything else, please consider going to gooddistinctions.com uh, to become a paid subscriber. Uh, in order for me to continue to put out these episodes and have interviews with, like I said, I've got, I've got great guests coming on. A couple of episodes already recorded. I can't wait to share with you all in the coming months. Uh, and then some other great guests to have on some uh, really exciting conversations that I get to have and share with all of you. So if you enjoy these, if you've gotten anything out of Good Distinctions, if you enjoy the written articles that I put out and want to continue to see this grow, I need your help. It costs uh, it costs quite a bit of money to, to put this on. There's a lot of different software and equipment that it takes to uh, make it happen well and properly. And uh, so really, please consider prayerfully uh, donating you can do so for as little as $5 a month or $50 for a yearly membership. Um, and uh, that would go a long way, It'd go a long way to help continue good distinctions because good distinctions are the spice of life. And what we try to do is reignite good conversation, seek out the best distinctions and inspire others to do the same. And so if you'd like to join in that, again, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on Substack. You can do that right at gooddistinctions.com. Uh, Substack is what I use to host gooddistinctions.com. It's a great platform uh, to check out some other great authors and content creators. And uh, so that's it. That's all I've got this week. So next week, I'll be talking to Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers 
uh, about his new book on the Catholic response to racism. I cannot wait to have that conversation and share it with all of you. So pray for me and know that I'm praying for you. God bless. We'll see you next week.